Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the show. And I actually want to take a moment to welcome any new listeners that have joined because I've seen that the unique listens have been going up every month. So if this is you coming into One Broken Mom for the first time, then welcome here. So I really appreciate it. Now, um, before I, I break into the show here, I don't mean to interrupt the flow, but I do a very poor job of not asking this enough. And that is if you are a new listener or even a repeat listener, and if you haven't done this already, please make sure that you actually hit the subscribe button for the show on your podcast app that you use. Um, a lot of people don't realize that um, the subscribe button is kind of like a vote button. And um, when a show gets new subscribers, that's actually how they increase in their rankings on that podcast platform and app. And so if you've been listening to it, but you haven't actually hit the subscribe, please do that. And while you're there, I'm not trying to be greedy or anything like that, but you know, take a moment to hit the rating button and give the show a rating. Um, and you don't need to write a review. Again, I'm not trying to push it here, but I will tell you, honestly, when I read the reviews, I swear to God, I do tear up when I see them because the whole point of me doing this show is to help other people. And so when I see somebody write, hell yes, this is the show to listen to, man, my heart just like wants to bounce out of my chest. So if you have the time to do that, I would be very, very grateful for that. So now on to today's topic, body shame. Now I've had this on my content plan since season one when I started this for many reasons. And one is obviously that body shame and eating disorders and self-esteem are outcomes for children um, and adults when they are dealing with some unresolved traumas or they express in childhood when the trauma is ever present in their lives. And sometimes it comes from certain experiences, like if we've talked about on the show, um, particularly when I've tackled the topic of narcissistic mothers, that parents who place high value on looks and esteem and then try to force their children into those um, standards and obliging by those standards can actually create eating disorders in some men and women both. But that's not always the case. And I have dealt with body shame and shame around my looks since I was about 12 years old. And my experience is not from being forced to be skinny or pretty. In fact, for me, it came from almost having the opposite childhood experiences. I was told that I was plain looking. In fact, I was teased for wanting to wear makeup so that I could get boys' attention. Um, I was never overweight as a child, but when I started to see cellulite forming on my legs at about 12 years old, I became focused on my weight and my, my looks there. Fortunately, however, growing up, I was athletic, um, which by just virtue of that alone regulated my weight pretty well. I ran, I played softball, um, I played basketball a lot. And so I was able to do kind of like the natural, you know, weight management pieces of it without having to become obsessed with exercise. Um, but every New Year's, 
every year. And in fact, it's funny because the hometown newspaper loves to always publish, you know, New Year's resolutions. And I don't even know how it happened, but I got copies of it. Somehow I ended up in the newspaper several times for my New Year's resolution. And it was always one thing to be in better shape and to have a better body from 12 years until I graduated from high school. So in a nutshell, my experiences were that I was invisible. I was only noticed when my name popped up in the papers, whether it was for writing or running or something else. The article got posted up on the refrigerator, but in the day-to-day of my life, who I really was as a human, what I really loved and what I really liked was ignored at best and teased for it at worst. And so my focus on being pretty came from the fact that being smart was weird. In fact, being told boys don't really like smart girls set a toxic tone in my life. But if I wanted anyone to notice me because I was starved for the attention, then being pretty was the way to do it. Now, I haven't talked about that very much on this show, but I did write about it in my blog that I actually had plastic surgery done 10 years ago around the time of this meltdown that started me on this path of of recovery um, that, you know, like, again, I've talked about it many, many times. I had always been teased for being flat chested by my mother and by boys. And so I had my breasts done. And after having my second child, I was left with the sagging stomach skin, the tiger stripes, and my normally flat abs, because again, I was obsessed about having a good body, they were wrecked. I ended up having the abdominal diastasis, which is that gap in the middle. I, you know, there was nothing flat about them anymore. And my self-esteem like dropped. And so I had a tummy tuck done as well. And I hardly told anyone about both of those things. And not until I let the cat out of the bag about a year and a half ago in a, in a blog post. Now, the boobs honestly were easy to talk about. First of all, they're there. You know, it's kind of hard not to see that that had been done. But the shame that was embodied in my tummy tuck was still hot and burning, even to the moment that I decided to publish an article and come clean about it. And in fact, I have this beautiful tattoo that many people remark on my stomach that I got just to hide the scars from the surgery as soon as I could get the ink put on there because I wanted to keep that a secret for as long as possible. So today... I still stand on a scale and I still watch numbers go up and down. Panic sets in when they creep up. And I actually, even to this day, make very poor food choices every once in a while, just so that I can number, manage that number the best that I can. Am I better than I was before? Well, hell yes, I'm better than I was before. In fact, I'm actually happy for the first time, genuinely, when I look in the mirror at this woman that's looking back at me. And, and I told my therapist just last week that I'm truly now the woman that I've always spent my life working towards. And while I technically look the same, and obviously I am older, it was the healing inside of me that made that happen, not those numbers on the scale. But does that mean that they still don't, you know, cause anxiety in me? No, that's not the case at all. Now, body shame and what's the best approach carries a lot of emotion with it, a lot of it. Bodies are not private battles. They are the thing we see and notice about everyone around us. And our internal conflict are manifested through our bodies in terms of not just the look and the size, but also through the health conditions and diseases, which I've also talked about on the show. And what do we have a culture of placing uh, is a placing value on how people look. And if we don't meet someone's standards, our shame about ourselves grows even deeper as we may be failing ourselves again. And so listen on today's episode, please with the idea that how we talk about body shame or self-esteem and what my guest did today to address her own issues and concerns is not a sweeping declaration that everyone needs to do it this way or feel this way about themselves, okay? We all have battles. They're all different. And the journey we choose to take for ourselves is for us alone to decide. 
So listen today with the idea of perhaps that maybe something that she's going to share with us may resonate with you. And if so, you might want to connect with her path moving forward. And if it doesn't, that's okay too. And I will point out for the people that are actually watching the show on YouTube, um, I'm not actually wearing very much makeup at all. And I have to say that because the moment I turned my camera on to do this recording, I completely second guessed my choice to do that, but I'm doing it for a reason. And that is I want to get over my own fears because at the end of the day, I don't actually think many of you give a shit what I look like on the show. I'm the one who gives a shit about that. And today I'm choosing to do something that is actually is, is pretty scary for me. And that is to be seen without my mask that I've been used to applying to my face for, for 12, you know, for many years, 12 years since 12. So today with me, I have Carmela Romalia. I think I got that one. <laughs> yes. Italian names are fun. Um, she's an author and a speaker and a coach. At 17 years old, she was hospitalized for anorexia when she was weighed only 80 pounds at that time. By 25, she'd been in treatment four more times. And by 30, she had actually um, was up to 200 pounds and suicidal. And she was facing a choice whether to live or choose to just live a different way. And so she's here today to share with us her story and her journey. So welcome, Carmela. Thank you. All right. Cool. So let's begin here by learning about you and your early life. So let's talk about, you know, what was your life growing up and what was your family like? Uh, it's, it's interesting because you, you talk about childhood trauma and a lot of these, these things that we deal with as adults have grown out of our experiences as children. And, you know, I don't remember a whole lot of it. I think that's one of my coping devices is I just, you know, have these blocks up and I let them go. Um, I'm not trying to avoid the question. I will definitely share the things that I can remember. But there is a lot of stuff I don't remember. And I notice that in therapy when, you know, we're hitting upon a trigger point or something like that. And my therapist asks, you know, well, when did you first feel this or remember this or whatever? And I have to, you know, go into my little meditation space. Um, it is young. It, it, it's like three, four, five. Um, and, I, and I can feel that and I can feel the, the emotion and I can feel the shame and I can feel the, the terror of that little girl um, without necessarily being able to remember exactly what it was that happened. Um, but to set the stage, I, my dad is an Italian immigrant. He moved to the States when, uh, he married my mom. So he's born and raised in Italy. So right there, you've got a, a culture divide and, you know, Italian men are passionate, um, and they are loud. <laughs> and, um, and my dad, uh, yeah, he had a temper. He, he was very, he was very scary. He was very big. He was very loud. Um, and I, what I've come to realize in adulthood, you know, that I obviously didn't know as a child was that I, I was kind of the, the person that held the family together in a strange way. And I got a lot of messages. Um, and again, you know, no hating on my dad. He was doing the best he could, you know, all that healing work and all that stuff. But he would say things in anger um, that we've had conversations you know, later in my healing. And he's like, you took it like that. Well, how else am I supposed to take it? You know, like I'm four years old and he's screaming at me with these volcanic Italian eyes saying, if it weren't for you, I'd be in Italy. 
And so I'm thinking, oh, I, I'm, I'm the problem. Like if it weren't for me, he'd be happy. If it, it's, it's all my fault. Um, and he's saying, he, he was saying, well, I was saying that I love you so much that if, if you weren't here, you know, I, I'm like, dad, please, whatever. But I got, I got a lot of, um, a lot of very negative things from this volcano of a father. Um, he never hit, it was, it was, it wasn't an abusive situation that way. Um, but one of my colleagues had said that sometimes, uh, in, in a way, a harder DV situation is the kind that doesn't leave any bruises because you're always second guessing yourself and you don't, you don't really think that it's really happening. Um, and I would never want anybody to be hit or, you know, anything like that. But, but there's a line, you know, and it's like you cross that line, you know that something is wrong, where if that line is not crossed, you don't always know that things aren't normal or things aren't right. Um, but I got a lot of messages like, if it weren't for you, I'd be in Italy. Um, and, and he said a lot of things that made me think that, like, everything in the world is my fault. Any, anything that's wrong in the world is my fault. And, and at the most fundamental level, the world would just be a better place if I weren't in it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that drove a lot of the things. And so I think I would have been a com completely messed up, you know, regardless because of the family of origin dynamic that I had. But I think specifically it went to an eating disorder rather than drug or alcohol addiction or any of that other kind of stuff um, because of my mom's mom, because of that side of the family. Um, so the, the volcano of Italy kind of daddy issues messed me up. Um, and it was the Grammy side of the family that, you know, channeled that into an eating disorder. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So your parents remained married throughout your childhood? Yes, they are still married to this day. And and it's interesting, they, they still live in the house that, you know, I grew up in. And, and I, ha I have mixed feelings about that, you know, and especially as I go deeper into my own healing and my own treatment about how, um, you know, I, I can see the, the value of, you know, just working out your crap and, you know, this is what you're stuck with and, you know, make it happen. Um, but I also have a lot of you know, I have a lot of mommy issues, you know, it's like, why, why didn't you leave? Or why did you let him do that to me? Um, and, 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 and it's interesting. I just had a conversation with my mom a couple of months ago and she did, I don't think she actually understood the extent to what was happening, even though we'd been in family therapy, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, because I was saying some things and she's like, well, where did that come from? And I'm like, well, dad. And she says, well, where was I? And I'm like, I don't know, work. I don't know. And so this whole new revelation of all this stuff that was going on with me as a kid that my mom had no idea about, um, really set her over the edge for a couple of weeks, like, Oh my God, what's happening. So, um, so, so yeah, they're still together. Uh, but at the older I get, I understand my mom's um, challenges in a different way, even though my mom, um, I'm not, I don't have human children, but I have, I have animal children, but my mom, uh, my little sister has a very strong attachment to my dad. We, we had completely different dynamics. It was, 
I, I was, we had a, huh, in family therapy, like one of the first projects I had to do in therapy was to draw a family portrait and I can't draw worth anything. So of course I'm going to make mine all symbols. And so on this, on this page, my dad, I just drew Mount Vesuvius. You know, he's from Naples and Mount Vesuvius is right outside Naples. So what I was thinking (laughs) (laughs) that, that took up, you know, three quarters of the page. And then the other quarter of the page was me and I was a butterfly in the middle of all of it. And then off in the corner were my mom and my sister, you know, kind of being protected. And my sister has this really weird thing with my dad that, you know, I think my mom stayed. I I don't know why my mom stayed, but, but this idea that my sister would break if the family fell apart and I was the one holding the family together. And I don't think that my mom really realized the extent to which I was carrying all of that weight. Oh, pun intended. Um, all of that weight and all of that, that energy and that drama, um, my entire life, actually. Right. I still do it today. I still do it today. I'm almost 50 years old and I am still the one doing it. Um, they are, it's, it's a very weird dynamic where my mom will give me some money and say, don't tell your dad, you know, or then my dad will give me some money and say, don't tell your mom. And it's like, it's this, it, it's insane. <laughs> it's just, it's just families, families. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Understandable. So you have, you're the oldest with just a younger sister. Is that how yes. many of the siblings? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And so the, you know, and I'm, I am connecting with the story of kind of being in charge or kind of pulling things together um, because I was the oldest with, you know, younger siblings as well. Um, and, and not having um, the Mount Vesuvius in my life. Well, you know, m- my mother kind of filled that role and, um, yeah. you know, interchangeable um, fathers, you know, throughout a few of the years and stuff like that. Now I wanted to go back to, for anybody that's listening, cause I, I didn't take your response of you having difficulty with, with recall. That's actually not unusual. Um, you know, depending on the experiences that, you know, many of us have and, um, and how we end up connecting, um, with people very early on. Um, it, it can be actually a legitimate, it is a legitimate, um, kind of survival tactic that some people will be able to recall every excruciating detail of every wound, every harm, every, every, everything. And, um, with no problems. And then there are some people that actually, you know, have some difficulties with recall and that's just, you know, the way the brain, uh, you know, our brains were kind of kicking in and surviving in whatever capacity that you were adapting to. So I never took that as a, a skirting the skirting. <laughs> I just wanted to tell you that. So, okay. <laughs> um, now you, um, so your eating disorder then developed, was it instant, you know, that you were a teenager that you suddenly like clicked uh, into it or was it something that had been building over time and then finally just kind of got worse for the first time when you were 17? Um, I think, I think it'd been something that was inevitable, um, given my grandmother and that side of the family and like every woman on that side of the family has issues with all of that. And, and Grammy was very, um, very instrumental. And I remember being really, 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 really young. And one of my cousins telling me that Grammy liked her better because she was skinnier than I was. Um, and so there was always a lot of focus on that, a lot of focus on food, a lot of focus on how you looked, specifically your weight, not necessarily whether you had pretty eyes or pretty hair, but it was like specifically your weight. And a lot of things where um, she would be nice to you 
when everybody was around in a big family setting. And then the minute you left the room, she'd talk about you. So you, you knew, you knew that was happening to you because she did it to everybody else. Um, and so it was like the standard, what, what could you do to get Grammy's approval, you know? And, and maybe it was, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the ultra crazy one in the family. Um, but it, we all, we all kind of had these issues. And, um, and so weight had always been a, a big thing. Uh, but I didn't really ever go on a diet or think about it uh, until I turned 15 and I made the varsity cheerleading squad and I knew the shorts, the skirts were going to be short. And I was also, I was one of the bigger girls on the squad, but I was also one of the tallest ones on the squad, you know? Um, And I was always the base of the pyramid and I wanted, I wanted to be on the top of the pyramid. I thought it was going to be like, I wanted to go up. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be the big girl down at the bottom. Uh, And so that summer I just started a little no junk food diet. Just if I thought it was junk food, I wouldn't eat it. So no candy, no chips. If it didn't have, you know, nutritional value, I just wasn't going to eat it. Um, I still ate plenty of other stuff that by today's standards, people would think, are horrible, you know, like full fat yogurt or, you know, something like that. Um, but I, I I didn't worry about it and I lost some weight over the summer and I don't really, you know, I didn't really keep track. I don't know how much weight that I'd lost over the summer. Uh, but when I got back in the fall, I started getting, I started getting attention. I'm like, Oh, you look good. Oh, you lost some weight. Oh, whatever. And then, um, and I think eating disorders specifically, they, they appeal, appeal, that's an awful word, um, but they sync up with people that have certain personality types. Um, and so I'm thinking, wow, a little type A, if, you know, this is good, more is better. So mm-hmm. eat less, exercise more. And, and we have this cultural idea that our body is simply a caloric balance sheet, you know, how much you eat and how much you exercise. So I just eat less and exercise more. And um, then it kind of became dysfunctional in a way that, um, that I be, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Cause if I think about it n- now with perspective, with everything I've gone through when I was 17 and I was hospitalized, they're telling me it's a disease and that, you know, I can't control it and things like that. Mm, right. When I, when I'm looking at it now, uh, I did suffer mightily from depression and a lot of girls in that have eating disorders also suffer from depression. Uh, but I was never given antidepressants in any of my treatment centers. It was just always this, like a secondary condition with me where a lot of the other girls were actually given antidepressants to cope with that. And so I had this depression thing going on. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything at all about anorexia, it's, you know, a very big control is a very big part of that. And so I could use this control to help cope with the depression, but, you know, with more history and more perspective and more wisdom and everything, I'm like, it was a battle of wills with my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, Oh, life is so bad. Life, you, you think the world would be a better place if I weren't in it? Well, here, let me not be in it. Mm-hmm. Let me do it right in front of you. You think you can make me eat? Oh, no, you can't make me eat, you know? And so um, it was that kind of battle, tug of war thing. Uh, a lot of anger. And 
a lot of people, um, I don't know if, if you haven't specifically suffered with restrictive anorexia, what, what it takes to be able to consciously and deliberately override every single impulse your body has for survival. You know, the amount of energy, the amount of anger, the amount of hatred, the amount of, you know, whatever it takes to physically be able to do that. Um, and so there, there's a lot of that that goes into that. It's not just a lot, what a lot of psychologists will say, oh, well, you know, it's just something that got tweaked and got maladaptive or, you know, it's just self-esteem or it's just, I mean, a lot of those things come into play. Um, with all forms of the eating disorders, but specifically that one, that's the one that like, but who could actually do that? You know, it's your, your body is begging for food and every instinct you have, you have to consciously and deliberately override it. So it, it takes, it takes something in there to motivate that. Oh, for sure. And I'm glad you went through that and described that because I think, you know, I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you me coming into this. Um, did I, have I ever stood in my bathroom and sat there and thought about like, okay, I would really like to lose weight. And you know what? And here's, here's the fucked up thinking. Again, this is an adult show. So hopefully that didn't just shock anybody, but here's the fucked up thinking sitting there going, I know eating disorders are bad, but they seem to work. <laughs> like, you know, women do and men do lose weight pretty quickly doing it. So what if I just try it for a little bit? What if I just do it this week? What if I just, you know, and then you're standing there going, I mean, are you, are you kidding me? Like, don't, no, 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 no. Like, you know, and so I have had fully admitting, I've had those conversations in my head of like, no, common sense says it's never okay. Like, you know, to just try it a little bit and see how it goes. You, you know, you're smart enough to have seen. And I, and I hate to say that, that it doesn't mean you're not smart when you get in, engaged in some sort of a destructive pattern. So, um, right. but to myself, my own inner dialogue is, you know, better don't do that. Don't even try it. But right. did I, are my choices ever really even better? No. When I go to my doctor and my doctor says your cholesterol's high, you have to cut down on the bacon. I'm thinking to myself, but yeah, but when I eat bacon instead of some of this other stuff, guess what? I'm full and, um, you know, the weight comes back off. And so there, you know, I haven't substituted it for an entirely better solution. It's a different solution right. So for you to talk about and, and, and explain that it, it, it sounds like what came into my brain is it sounds a lot like the processing somebody's going through when they choose to end their life. Yes. If your body is trying, you, you know, your, your default is not to end your life. Our default is to survive. It is to right. survive that all the trauma and all the stuff that we talk about is what our bodies and brains have been doing to survive through all of this. So um, you describing anorexia you know, in its extreme form is having to override what your body's trying to do. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, thanks for, and I don't know how many other people listening to this ever really considered anorexia in that way, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so you, you, you start and you're hospitalized. Now, how tall are you? Cause 80 pounds is irrelevant unless we know that you yeah, are. I'm five, seven. Okay. Pretty tall. So 80 pounds is, is pretty, um, is pretty, uh, small. Um, I, you know, I'm five, 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 six. And, um, the other thing that I don't share a lot and nobody's ever seen is that when I was actually pregnant with my child, my first child, um, I topped out at just under 190 pounds. That was what I weighed on the scale. Um, right after I gave birth to him. 
And then for one year, I was around 165 pounds. Those pictures are not out there in social media. That is not something I've ever told anybody. Um, but, uh, you know, so if anybody, you know, anybody that's looking or knows me and sits there and goes, have you really struggled with body shame? Well, yeah, because I've actually, uh, you know, I've been on an end of where I've actually been much larger than I am now um, and had to deal with, you know, battling myself back to a place. And so this whole idea of standing in a bathroom wondering, like, do I just try an eating disorder for a little bit just to get my weight down? It has, are very real choices that I had to make for myself. So mm-hmm. now you, um, by the time you were 25, you'd been in the hospital and treatment four times uh, for this. Um, you know, what kept you coming back? I mean, w- why wasn't treatment helping you or in working for you? Uh, that's the basis of the work that I do today. <laughs> um, so that, all right. So the basic thing about why treatment doesn't, didn't work for me. And I, and quite frankly, I don't think it works for a whole lot of people. I think there is, you know how people say that, uh, well, a lot of people will say that we have a sick care system in America instead of like a healthcare system. Um, the eating disorder treatment things are things that keep people stuck in eating disorders rather than actually helping them get out. And I don't know that that's intentional. Um, that's, that's a byproduct of, of how they come across and try to treat them. Right. Um, now, I, 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 I'm sorry here, because I want to also put context here, because this is yes. going to be important. Um, you, you mentioned that you're uh, not quite 50. So I'm guessing we're in the yes. same age group. I'm 47 years old. Yeah. And so when we talk about you going through treatment, this is 20 years ago, your yes. first bout of an... Okay. So I, and I'm sorry for uh, interrupting, but that's what people need to hear. We're not talking about recent treatment. We're talking right. about the way, again, psychology was addressed and a lot of disorders, mental health and mental wellness disorders were... Uh, you know, accounted for. And when you talk about not having depression treated, we know better now, but we did better then. So, uh, so I want to, so for the listeners, that's the, that's the timeline. We're talking about eighties, early nineties. Right. And nobody knew what we know now about the nervous system and the brain and all that stuff. So, okay. So, yes. So, so thank you for correcting me on that. Yes. um, We do know more, we do know more about nervous system, depression, all of that kind of things, but the basic fundamental issue I think they, they still miss the mark today. And that is that in general, they take an approach of treating eating disorders similar to drug addiction or alcohol addiction in the sense that the dysfunction of the disorder is treated as a symptom that is happening because of a deeper underlying emotional issue which is true. Uh, and so, you know, it's not about the food. It's about daddy. You know, you're, you don't really want to weigh 80 pounds. You're just trying to kill yourself in front of daddy, you know, like different issue. Yes. Altogether. Uh, but the problem with, with doing that is that if you are in drug or alcohol, a treatment, what they do is they put you in a facility where you can't do drugs or alcohol. They, they dry you out. And then they deal with the mommy issues and the daddy issues and all of that thing. And they give you the support so that hopefully once you leave treatment, then you've got the skills and the tools and you've started to address those emotional issues so that you don't have to revert back to drugs or alcohol. And it is theoretically possible for you to go through treatment and then go on and live a happy, vibrant life without ever touching another drug or drop of alcohol again. What they do with eating disorder treatments is they put you in the treatment center where they're going to keep you from engaging in your maladaptive behavior while you're working out your mommy issues and your daddy issues. But how they keep you from engaging in that behavior is they put you on a freaking diet. So 
it's you, you it could be a high calorie diet if you're anorexic you know they were feeding me what 4,000 calories a day and if I didn't eat it then I had to drink that insure crap for it um, they, they were doing all the numbers and everything or you know like if you're bulimic or you're a compulsive overeater they call it a structured meal plan but it's still a diet it's still this external thing so what happens is you go through treatment and you start to see some of your mommy issues and your daddy issues and you start to work on them but then once you go into the real world what do you do about the food piece you go back into this environment where your body is a result of what you eat and what you do for exercise and then they think that if you're healthy you know if mentally healthy you've sorted out all your emotional crap well then you'll make good food choices and you'll make good exercise choices and somehow by being healthy and by being good you'll get a, the body that you want um, but that that's crazy making and what that does is it keeps you stuck in what I call the diet and exercise mindset or the diet and exercise model and that is the that's the mindset that's the piece that regardless of how much you weigh and regardless of whether you've had an eating disorder or not, um, and regardless of your ups and downs throughout your weight, throughout your life, it will keep you in a constant state of pain and shame around your body because it keeps you in this catch 22. Mm -hmm. And so what, what I've, what it's taken me, you know, almost 50 years to be able to, to understand and nine years of running my business to be able to articulate to other people is that yes of course you're absolutely responsible for what you eat and yes of course you were absolutely responsible for whether or not you engage in some sort of physical activity every day but the fact that you are responsible for what you eat and what you do for exercise does not mean that therefore you can control your body's weight and shape through diet and exercise and that's the fallacy that we all get stuck in and that's the thing that keeps us in shame because we think that there's something wrong with us we think we're bad because we're just not exercising enough or we're just not making the right food choices or we're just too busy or we're just whatever it is we're failing somehow and so we're bad it's our deepest shame because we think that we just don't have what it takes or we're just not smart enough or we're just not disciplined or we just don't care enough or whatever to do whatever this thing is to get this result that we want. And I'm here to tell you that thing doesn't work because you know what? I've starved myself to 80 pounds. I've worked out 24 seven, you know, I've, and even when I was heavy, I did the diets to the letter. I did the exercise programs to the letter and they were not working. Um, there was all this other stuff going on. So I am a living, walking, breathing case study to show you, if, if you just don't believe me, if that little leap in logic didn't click for you, that mm -hmm. no, no, it doesn't work. And the path to healing and the path to starting to befriend your body is to recognize that you can't control it any more than you can control your children, you know, or anything like that. But you can befriend it. And you can work with it and you can partner with it and it's actually in your body's best interest for you to be friends with it because whatever you do affects your body. Mm -hmm. So if you over exercise or overeat or under eat or don't exercise or whatever it is you're doing, it's having an impact on your body mm -hmm. and your body knows, you know, it's, and, and this is a leap of faith for some, um, but it's like, I like to take the perspective of a thing called the miracle of life. 
you know, like how, how are these cells dividing and like creating a human being from, you know, an egg and a sperm? Like how, how does all of this stuff happen? So your body has this intelligence. It can heal itself of wounds. It overcomes illnesses. It, it has this, this sense of how to be vibrant and optimized and healthy and vital. And it's trying to communicate that information to us all the time, but we don't listen to it because we're caught in this cultural soup that's directing our focus outwards and saying that our body's the enemy and that we can control it to look a certain way, to fit a certain mold or, or whatever the noise is out there. But when we can tune that out and tune into our body and befriend our body and realize, you know, speaking of abusive relationships, you know, in childhood, some of us have created an abusive relationship with our body through our, our adulthood and we are the abusers, mm-hmm. you know? So if we can learn to ask our body for forgiveness and to make peace with it, there's a line in the course of miracles that I absolutely love that says, the holiest spot on earth is where an ancient hatred has become a present love. And I always, that from the moment I saw that quote, I immediately thought of my body and and, it's, and I know that there are probably some listeners out there that are like freaking out right now. Oh my God, no, I can't love my body. What are you talking about? Don't love my body. And you know what? You don't have to love your body. You know, this whole love the skin you're in thing with body image movements and body positivity and all of that stuff, you know, that's a great slogan for body lotion, but it doesn't give you a practical process to create that transformation. And the truth is, you don't have to love your body. I didn't love my body. Just start stopping to hate it. Mm-hmm. Stop hating your body. And that's enough. Yeah. It, it was interesting listening to you talk because uh, immediately an interview that um, some of my listeners will know about is with uh, Dr. Brad Klontz, who's a financial psychologist. And so if we want to talk about like overarching, like big shame that, you know, we, everybody has, um, the other one aside from bodies is finances. You know, we are embarrassed by um, the fact that we may not be as financially successful as that we hoped that we'd, we would be. And you were almost verbatim channeling everything that he said, you know, about <laughs> what does work, what doesn't work, that we're too embarrassed to talk about it. We, we can't feel that shame for it. it. What happened is the, the direct result of the, the sum of the experiences, the accumulations of the experiences that we had. And of course, of course, we, we end up where we're at because that's what's going to happen to you when you, you know, add this A plus this B plus this C, you're going to get this outcome, this result. Uh-huh. And, um, and so, and, and, you know, when we talk about money on the show and the money disorders, you know, they, Uh they all kind of have some shared, you know, shared pool, you know, in terms of where they, they come from, but it's the same thing of, uh, you know, of, in order to be able to kind of make that leap, you know, as you called it a leap of faith. And I think some of my listeners are making that leap because that's why they're here, but it's not a far leap to go. Yeah, no, I know. I, that's why I'm listening. I need to know that I have to shift something. And with money, it's, it's a totally different thing of realizing that, you know, scripts, again, we talked about scripts in our heads, Uh, messages that we get on a regular basis will influence that and, and how you, you know, how you think about it. Um, So, you know, one thing that I wanted to um, ask you about is now, how did you go from um, being anorexic to suddenly being 200 pounds? How did that swing actually happen in your life? Well, what had happened was um, my, I spent basically my senior year of high school in the hospital, you know, don't really remember, you didn't go to prom home, you know, and that, that was all gone. Uh, and 
uh, they let me out of the hospital. I think, I think I was maybe a hundred, 105 pounds. And they let me out against medical advice. Um, somebody had done some calculation that said that my ideal body weight was like 125 or something like that. And that I should at least be at 90% of my ideal body weight. And again, you know, numbers, math, blah, blah, blah. And so my mom, um, to get me out of the hospital, because I wasn't going to graduate, um, made a deal with the doctors that I would be, quote unquote, in the hospital at home. And so for that entire summer, she weighed and measured everything I ate. I had to fill out menus just like I was in the hospital. She took my blood pressure, lying down, sitting up, standing up three times a day, had my weigh-ins, you know, twice, twice a week. And it was always this, if you go below a certain number, you're going to, no questions asked, you go back in the hospital, you know, and every privilege that I was going to earn was tied to my weight. So at 110, I could drive again at 115, I could go to work, you know, things like that. And that, that went all the way until the day I left for college. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly I'm in college and I am freaking out because I have no idea, you know, now I've got all this freedom, all of this, you know, if I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to overeat and then gain weight, or I'm afraid I'm not going to eat enough and then lose weight and automatically be back in the hospital. And even though I'd been in treatment already, like no one ever challenged that core assumption. We just kind of believe it that you eat so much, you gain weight, you don't eat enough, you lose weight, you exercise so much, you lose weight, you exercise less. You, that was still that driving force. And so what had happened was I'd gone through my four years of college and I managed to maintain my weight. And then somewhere in my twenties, I started to mysteriously gain weight. And you know what? I shouldn't have because I was still eating. So whatever. And then exercising more. And then people are going to say, Oh, it's your 20 something hormones are changing, you know, blood metabolism changing, blah, blah, blah. So, well, I can't have that. So I start eating less and exercising more and I start gaining more weight. And I'm like, I can't do that. And so eating less and exercising more. And so that's kind of what turned into some of the subsequent hospitalizations because they, they think that I'm crazy. And I'm like, but I'm, I'm not crazy because according to the math equation you were giving me, according to the information society is giving me, you as the doctors are giving me, this shouldn't be happening. But they're telling me that I'm just too obsessed with my body image and I'm too obsessed with my weight and I'm too obsessed, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I don't have enough self-esteem. Something's wrong with me. And that took a long time for me to be able to pull myself out of, because again, I started therapy when I was a 15 year old kid, you know, and you have all of these doctors and experts and telling you this stuff. And it took a long time for me to be able to trust myself. So in hindsight, I could see like, that was the struggle. The struggle was no, according to the information you were giving me and the rules this should be the outcome and I'm not getting that outcome. And so I want to know what I need to do to get a different outcome. And they're telling me that I'm crazy. So that my weight continued to rise and I continued to just be frustrated by all of this. And then I had a relationship that <laughs> I had a relationship with the bodybuilder. That's funny. My very first boyfriend was with a bodybuilder because this guy owned a gym, you know? Yeah. And, and it's like, I can work out 24 seven if I want, you know, it's like, of course. Um, and so that relationship did not last and I had to put a state between us. So I ran away to grad school and what, and so this whole time, you know, my weight is slowly creeping up 
And then in grad school, I managed to find this, you know, quote unquote, right diet and right exercise program. And in grad school, I could kind of create my own little bubble around me, you know, so you're kind of not in reality when you're in school. It's a different kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Um, unless of course you're one of those people that tries to go to school when you're, when you're married to have children and have a full-time job. But you know, if you just like run away, like I did, I could create this little bubble and I, you know, I had, I was losing weight and it was coming back down and things were awesome. And then I had this, this, in exchange with someone at work that just, I don't know what the word for it is, like something in me just broke. It was just like, what are you talking about? And all of those years of starving, all of those years, and it's like, it's not working anyway. I don't, so that all turned into like, I, I tried to kill myself by starving and that didn't work. So I was going to kill myself by overeating. And so I just ate and ate and ate and ate. And, and for a while, um, for the first couple of months, I was trying to eat. So it was like, I'm not going to eat. Okay, I ate. And then shit. Oops, sorry. Um, I okay. ate. So <laughs> I ate. So now I have to do an extra hour on the treadmill to burn that off. And so for a couple of, a couple of months, it was trying to still manage that balance sheet but I was working out so much and then eating so, and then, and the depression was coming and it was just like, fuck it. And then it was like, I, I seriously gained like 60 pounds in maybe two and a half months. It wow, was just, that's fast. It, it was fast. It was awful. It was, and I didn't die. And I was just so pissed off. I mean, it was just like, what the hell? Um, and then I ended up coming home from grad school and so I thought I was at rock bottom and it's like, crap, I've got this weight I need to lose. So what do you do? You go to the gym and you go on a freaking diet, you know? And so at that point I was legitimately overweight doing everything I had been doing the entire time I was anorexic, but now I was fat and it wasn't changing my body. Nothing was happening. It didn't matter what exercise program I did. It didn't matter what diet I did. It didn't matter what God I believed in, what type of law of attraction I thing I did, what type of emotional eating healing thing I did, what type of, you know, spirit, um, soul retrieval or psychotherapy approach or, um, you know, EMDR, all, all of that. Kind of, it didn't matter. My body was not changing. And that's when I really hit bottom and realized that I was going to be fat no matter what, it, it didn't matter what, it didn't matter what I did, what kind of effort I put in, I was going to be fat and I failed and Grammy was going to hate me. You know, I, I was now the fat girl. I used to be the skinny girl. I used to be the beloved child because I was the skinny one and now I'm the fat girl. And so she's going to hate me and everybody's going to hate me. And I can't even show my face um, anywhere where I used to live because you know what happened to the skinny girl. Now she's the fat girl. Um, couldn't do any of that. And And it was like, well, the anorexia didn't kill me and the overeating didn't kill me. So I guess I'm going to have to kill me. Um, And it was really painful because I really wanted to. um, But one of my cousins had already done that. And I saw, um, I saw what it did to my mom. So, um, and, and this was, and this was still when I was anorexic. It was before, before all of my other drama, this was, like right after I graduated college 
and uh, we got this phone. I was actually at work and my sister called me at work and she just said, you know, you have to call mom right now. And so I called and I found out what happened and my dad had already gotten on a plane to go to California and I had to go pick my mom up and she was, I was driving and she was in the passenger seat and she just let out this wail, this like, why that was, um, just so animalistic. It was just so primal, just this why that I just couldn't do that to my mom. And, and it was just like, crap. Well. I can't keep living this way and, and I can't not live. So I had to change the way I was living. And so I just decided, well, I'm fat and there's nothing I can do about it. So for the first time ever in my life, I quit looking at food as something that was going to have an effect on my body. I quit looking at exercise as something that was going to have an effect on my body because it didn't matter if I did it or didn't do it. It didn't, it didn't, my body was the same. It didn't matter. Um, and by having that shift, uh, I felt so much better, <laughs> um, so much freer. And I turned around one day and like lost 50 pounds and didn't even realize that I had lost 50 pounds. I was eating pizza and ice cream and not going to the gym and all of this kind of stuff. But then what happened was that I, then I went, wow, I'm almost there. Like, you know, I'm almost there. If I can lose 50 pounds eating pizza and ice cream, I wonder how much weight I can lose if I really try. <laughs> so, so then it's the next diet and exercise program again. And then I start to gain weight. And so I went through this period where it, you know, if I went on a diet or exercise program, I would, I would gain weight. And so then I would quit it and I would lose weight. And so, uh, that, that's kind of how that was. And then the past, you know, 15 years or so of this uh, and, and after writing Happy Calories Don't Count has been a process of me figuring, me going back in perspective in hindsight because it was my, my transformation was my story, but everybody's going to have their own story. You know, you, I don't want you, I don't want you to do what I did. Um, so it's been perspective and hindsight and looking back to be able to put the pieces of the situation together so that then I have a framework to help other people. But mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Cause I don't, I don't want you to go where I went. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, when we talk about the past, you know, it's not intended so that we can live there. It's mm -hmm. um, it is when you look down at your feet and you see it, it is helpful to kind of look back over your shoulder and go, how did I get here? Like, cause I want to know if this, if here is going to get me to there, which is where I want to go, or is here going to get me there? And if I don't want to go there, then I need to know how I arrived here, you know, and, and I know people kind of, um, you know, sit there and go, well, you know, whatever happened in the past, you don't need to worry about it. Well, you know, what we're finding is you do, you don't need to live there. You don't need to, um, you know, take up residence in your past and turn it over in your head over and over again. You just need to be able to pull it apart for what it is, non-judgmental, remove your shame, remove your guilt. Um, and then assemble it back with new information to, to give you a better perspective. And that's, and that's why the journey backwards is sometimes vital in order to move forward. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, 
with your mom's really strong reaction there. And I appreciate how powerful that still feels to you right now. And I'm, I was going to give you a moment to be able to, to kind of compose because it's, it, it's really tough. Um, do you think that at some point deep inside, she was worried that you were going to do the same thing? And that was a oh, bit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I kind of thought was that when you see something like that happen as a mom myself, you know, my terror that would be is that my daughter would be next. Um, well, yeah. And she'd already had um, experiences like that because like when I, when I was actually hospitalized before I ended up in the treatment center that I was at, um, I, they were going to take me and the state was going to commit me. Um, and then it was, I was going to end up in a psych ward at Fairfax. Uh, and that my, my parents didn't, you know, didn't like the jail cell feel. And so they were, they were looking for a place that, that felt like they could actually let their daughter go. And I think it was the second or third night I was there. Um, and I didn't know this was happening, but the nurse, somebody at the hospital called my mom and said, you have to come right now. Your daughter's dying. And so my sister has this PTSD experience of um, she and my mom flying across the 520 bridge to try to get there before I die. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know I was dying. Uh, and, and, and so, and at the time, like, I think right now, well, eating disorder, anorexia specifically is the highest, is the leading cause of death for teenage girls. Mm-hmm. And I think it's 10% right now. And when I was in treatment, they were saying it was 50%. So that was very, you know, up on my yeah. mom's, on my mom's radar. Yeah. 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 Now, um, we're going to talk now about you know, your life experiences. You mentioned that you wrote a book, Happy Calories Don't Count, and you published that in 2009, I believe. So like 10 years ago, 10, 10. Okay. So about nine, 10 years ago that you wrote that book. And today, um, like I mentioned at the top of the episode here, you are an author and a speaker and a coach right now. Mm -hmm. So let's touch on a bit about the coaching that you do. And um, what does that look like? I mean, what is, um, you know, because at the end of this episode, I want people to look you up. Your contact information will be in my podcast notes. They'll be able to find you. Um, you're actually based in the Seattle area. So for the local listeners and stuff, she's, she's right here. Um, but what is this coaching experience? What is the sum of your experiences and what you share with other people that want to, to understand the connection you made that changed you for a, the better? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a variety of ways to inter- engage because, you know, when I went to grad school, I went to grad school for education and you know what? Not everybody learns the same way. So I, I tried to address all the modalities. So I've got, you know, some online programs where you can do the content piece online and then talk to me, you know, remotely or virtually. And then I can, you know, take your hand and walk you through it and we can work together one-on-one. But essentially what it is, is I help you or my clients or whomever, you know, get in touch with their own stories and struggles with food and their bodies so that they can, they can see it for what it is. And then I provide a five-step process that I've reverse engineered from, you know, what I did. And, and you know what, and I will, I would give it to your listeners right now, if we have time. The thing is, is that no one can ever do it. It's kind of like, I pull, I'm like Neo, I pull you out of the matrix, mm-hmm. but in the movie, once you're out of the matrix, you're out of the matrix. And here I pull you out of the matrix and then you just go right back in. So <laughs> really what, what my work is, is ultimately about is I give you this, this framework, this perspective where, you know, like we've even just touched on here. It's, 
you're, you're responsible for what you eat and what you do for exercise, but you can't control your body. So let's befriend your body and develop a relationship with your body and, you know, move your body in every day. Um, and exercise is not about burning calories or losing weight. Exercise is a way for you to become embodied. And when you are in tune with your body, you know what to eat and how much. And, you know, so things like that. So I've got these five steps, five principles that I share with people. But then the bulk of my work is helping people embody those principles and live those principles in a day-to-day, moment-to-moment way. Because, you know, someone out there may be listening to this podcast and say, oh my God, this was amazing. She's changing my life. She's just hit on every single thing I need to do. You turn off the podcast and then five minutes later, you're back in the matrix. Mm -hmm. Because we have so much stimulus and everything about our culture is built on that diet and exercise model. All the marketing, all the advertising, the conversations that we have with our girlfriends, you know, about, oh, I need to run, you know, I need to get in shape or, you know, I, I had the, I had the cheese dip. I shouldn't have had the cheese dip or whatever that is. It gets you back in there. So that's the bulk of what that is. I'm, uh, essentially I'm a relationship coach between you and your body. Yeah, no. And that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I want to try to paraphrase what you're talking about, about not being in control of your body. And I don't know if, um, because I, you know, I'm sitting here working, working through this myself and, um, and I know I, I, what you're saying. And so I, I want to be able to say this back at you. Help me if you, mm-hmm. um, if I've got this correctly, that is our bodies have a whole lot of autopilot functions going on that mm-hmm. we, that we are not controlling. Like, you know, right. we, we, um, we get the flu. It's not our fault. <laughs> the body decided to do it. Um, right. I have rheumatoid arthritis. It's a disease that, um, I, you know, I want to control it. Sometimes I, you know, I can't. And so what you're describing is, is that we feel like we've been told that the math, you know, a thousand calories you eat, you exercise and burn 1500. That's a deficit of 500 calories that equals weight loss. Mm-hmm. And, and that gives you that sense of that power and control, but your body is on an autopilot function. It's going to do what it does. And it knows, and is, I mean, the beautiful thing about our brain and body is that it's so complex. It's so wonderful that it's not that easily nuanced down to just the math that you're talking about. And so what Carmela is talking about here is once you realize that there's a whole lot of stuff that's out of your control, a lot of it. In fact, let's all just be vulnerable and scared here. We're on a small rock in a universe. We have no control. There's no control in our life, right? (laughs) And so your happy calories don't count is like, just, you know, say, Hey, here's, here, here's what I am. And I'm going to give up that control because I I didn't have it to begin with. So you aren't, you aren't losing yourself, right? Right, right. Happy calories don't count because there is no price to pay to eat. That's part of that, that thing that we've been taught, you know, as trying to create the illusion of control. Right. Um, And the thing is, is that um, when you realize that and you stop trying to control your body and, and in the context of relationship, that's when you start to partner with your body. And you know, from any other relationship that you have, interpersonally work or whatever, that when you stop trying to control that other person and you, you know, respect and honor and listen and communicate with this person and you show them, you know, affection, they, Hey, they respond in kind, you know, it's, it's a two relationships are a two way street, you know, so you can learn a lot from your body. Your body might be trying to tell you and communicate things to you. Um, one of the things that I like to say, it's, you know, story that I made up was that you know, my body refused to quote unquote cooperate um, whenever I tried to do a diet or an exercise program toward the end because it was trying to show me 
that I wanted more out of life. You know, I'd spent, you know, my entire life being confined and restricted by these food and exercise choices and being consumed in my head. And yes, I understand consume and consume and, you know, point taken. Um, but this, this whole idea that my body was trying to get me to evolve and see things a different way. And, and then I can partner with it and I'll be 50 next month. And I look a whole lot better. Yeah, I'm older, but I look a whole lot better than I did when I was 30. And physically, I feel really good. I feel better than I did when I was 20. You yeah. know, so. Yeah. I, you know, and I, I am, I, I agree with that. It's my, my thoughts about myself today. And, you know, I exercise now because of a bigger vision that I have for myself, which is that if I don't, because of the RA, and I just kind of let the body run and I don't try to nurture it and understand it. You know, I'm not going to be able to go on hikes and travel the world like I want to do for 80 years. It has nothing to do with looks anymore. It has to right. do with what is the future that I see for myself and can I get there if I don't actually keep my muscles in shape and, um, and, and keep my, um, you know, keep my body in a good condition. And that was one of the reasons why, um, you know, I gave up alcohol. I didn't give up alcohol. I know people are going to call bullshit and go, I mean, you you know, I I know. Yes. Margaritas and dirty martinis. Yes. I still drink those, but drinking alcohol every day and doing it, um, like as a weekly ritual, like some people do Friday, Saturday nights, go out and go drinking and do all that stuff, cutting all of that out because of recognizing that it was, um, not that it's evil, but that my my desire to do it was laced back to an emotional coping mechanism, and you know, mm-hmm. and that, um, and saying, well, I don't need that coping mechanism anymore. The body rewarded it, and it rewards a lot of people. Give up alcohol, and suddenly you're you do lose weight. Not everybody does, but I think that right. you know, partly of what you're saying there is that your body's like, thank God, thank you for not putting alcohol right. in me anymore. So now everything right. can. Well, everything, you know, all the, all the buttons get pushed and, you know, we're all like firing on better cylinders and yeah, 47 years old. Um, like I said, a genuine look in the mirror today, this is the best I've ever been. I feel really good. Um, I've had toner muscles for sure in my life. Um, but, um, my overall well being is, is amazing. And now it's finally saying, and why? Cause the bigger vision is to be able to have an exciting life, not, not worry about, you know, whether or not somebody likes me, um, or if I'm pretty enough, you know, or anything like that. So, well, I think you've got a a powerful story. Um, and so I appreciate you sharing that, um, on the, on the program today and letting other people see into the life that you've gone, you know, that what you've, what your challenges have been and how you've been overcoming there. And, um, and I appreciate, um, you know, part of one broken mom is not just to share stories, but I, I particularly like to highlight people that actually have an outlet and a resource for other people. Um, because, you know, uh, we all deserve to heal and to be the best versions of ourselves, but there are a few of us that I, I do believe that um, have that, that strong, rich desire and capacity to be able to then help others, you know, mm-hmm. through that. And so you having that resource um, is, is amazing. So before we uh, wrap up, tell us how people can find you out there. Happycalories.com. Okay. So that's the website. I'm on Facebook at Happy Calories Don't Count. I'm on Twitter at Happy Calories. I'm on YouTube at Happy Calories and Happy Calories Don't Count. Yeah, yeah. Happy Calories and Happy Calories Don't Count. <laughs> All right, awesome. That's pretty easy, everybody. So, um, and also, again, you don't have to spell my name. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, or try to pronounce that Italian last name. Right. Again, a person with an Italian last name, Quiricone, that one gets butchered um, yeah. frequently as well. Yeah. So, um, awesome. Well, uh, Carmela, it's been a pleasure. I'm so excited to have had you back on or have you on the show today to talk with me, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, Amay. It was very, very lovely to be here. Awesome. Cool. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. 
You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiricone.com, and there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kurkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.